Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Hello, podcast listeners. Uh, This is Pastor Brian, and I hope this uh, beginning of our podcast finds you well today. Uh, We're about to start a new sermon series on COVID and um, sort of doing a debrief of the past year and a half, uh, half, and I thought it'd be a good time to send out a quick programming note and get some feedback from you, the folks who are listening regularly online. Uh, we've been sending out our Sunday sermon every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for this you know, past season of our church life together. And for me, as the pastor, uh, this usually requires a lot of extra work to make sure the podcast is preached and edited and uploaded and scheduled for 8 a.m. on Sunday. Because COVID has made our life together so hard, that extra work has been no problem at all. This is a real labor of love. Um, but since we've been gathering in person for worship and the, and the masks haven't been required, I wanted to reach out and see how many of our listeners download and listen to this service as a part of their socially distant Sunday morning routine. If you're listening to this on a Sunday morning at home, uh, I I think that's great. There are probably a number of you who do that, um, and it means the extra work is worth it. Um, But the analytics on our podcast software are showing us that many people are enjoying the podcast on Monday or Tuesday. Maybe it's part of their commute, uh, or maybe while they're washing the dishes, or at the gym, or walking the dog. That's great, too. And that's wonderful. I'm glad to have everyone listen wherever they're listening. But I would like to know if this is something uh, that, that, if the podcast arriving every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., if it's a blessing to you and it's continuing to be a blessing for it to arrive at that time and in that format, let me know, because it's going to encourage me to keep the fun going until we can all get back to church in person. Um, But if most people are enjoying the podcast during the week, then you know what? It may let me switch gears, and then I can record and share our in-person sermons, and it will save me some time and keep me focused on other church matters instead. And so, um, you know, all this, of course, is contingent on things like the Delta variant and, and similar matters. But for now, if you have any word of feedback to share about listening in on this podcast, send it my way, info at epiphanyligonier.org. And that goes straight to my email inbox. That's info at epiphanyligonier.org. And you can go to our website as well for that information, epiphanyligonier.org slash contact. The gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, is true seven days a week, not just on Sundays, of course. Uh, We're so glad to have you as a subscriber and a listener to this podcast. God bless you. I look forward to hearing from you. And have a great week. On Friday, a On Sunday, a king laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day. The firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Cotton Mather was a Puritan intellectual and also a minister, and he lived in colonial America in New England. And he was one of those early American colonial guys who dabbled in everything. You know, Thomas Jefferson, right, politician president, also an architect, and he invented the swivel chair. I thought that was really fun. And Ben Franklin was a a printer and a publisher and a politician who also liked to fly kites in lightning storms to learn about electricity. 
And, and Cotton Mather was a Puritan minister, but he was also a horticulturalist. Um, he was one of the first people to, to crossbreed a hybrid corn plant in America. And he was a historian and he was a writer. But pertinent to the year 2021, Cotton Mather was one of the first people in the Western world to dabble in the practice of inoculation. And uh, I'm really glad that we're dealing with COVID right now and not smallpox, right? Uh, imagine if the chicken pox you, you received as a kid had left lifelong scars and pockmarked on your face and skin and had a 30% mortality rate. That's what uh, smallpox is like. And um, Cotton Mather had a slave named Anesmus, right, from the book of Philemon. And uh, he was a slave from Africa who had explained that they had this practice in Africa that saved lives when a disease like smallpox broke out. They would find someone with a mild case of smallpox and they would drag a needle across the skin blemish. And so the needle would collect a little bit of the blood and the white blood cells and the infection and that sort of thing. And then you took that needle and you dragged that needle across the skin of someone else who was either deeply sick or not yet sick. And for whatever reason, the people who got it would be less likely to catch the disease. And if they did catch it, it wouldn't affect them as much. And uh, Mather was fascinated by this. Cotton Mather was fascinated by this. And so he went and did some studying on it and looked and did some research for about a decade. And uh, at that point, it was 1721 and it was Boston. And uh, the smallpox had returned. Uh, a trip from India had brought uh, smallpox. And it broke out in Boston. And Mather, at the time, he, he went and publicly advocated for this practice of inoculation. Uh, he said, instead of getting them getting this terrible, horrible disease, we can give them just a little bit of it, and then they can fight it off. And if they fight it off, then they won't get it anymore. And, and these inoculations, they weren't perfect by any stretch, right? Um, it, it still wasn't perfect, but it was significantly better uh, to inoculate than it would be than to just let 30% uh, mortality rate of a smallpox thing happen in Boston. And so Mather had a doctor. They were working together to make the case publicly. And um, the response to that, the response to this, this focus for inoculation in 1721 is familiar uh, to anyone who's watched the news in 2021, right? Because Mather, as someone who was advocating for inoculation, he drew the anxious ire of the entire city. And they all sort of began to blame him and, and, and inoculation for the spread of smallpox. They said, well, if all the people are doing this inoculation thing and purposely giving each other smallpox, well, then no wonder we have a pandemic happening. And so newspapers decried the practice and they printed rumors and falsehoods. You had false news, fake news in 1721. And other theologians used the Bible and a corresponding ignorance of how the body actually works to say that plagues were a judgment from God. And if we just trust God, the plague will run its course and everything will be fine. And the whole town was in a complete uproar over this as, as if everyone transferred their fear and their anger onto Cotton Mather and his friend. And it got so bad, the town hated him so much for his inoculation campaign that one night uh, he heard a window crash and he turned around and saw on the floor a bomb that was lit and the fuse was lit. And there was a note on the bomb saying, I'm going to kill you before you kill any more people. And someone had tried to bomb his house with him in it because of his advocacy for inoculation. I'm really glad that we haven't had a lot of bombings 
uh, during our own pandemic. <laughs> I'm glad that hasn't been a defining feature of our own season. But other than that, there's a lot of overlap between the pandemic of 2021 and the pandemic of 1721, 300 years ago. Uh, things like anger, bad science, fake news, scapegoating, medical anxieties. It turns out that when you look at the history of the pandemics, we humans aren't so different from our forefathers in terms of our response to a pandemic, a plague, or a pestilence. And so um, that's really got me to thinking, and it's been getting me to think for some time now. And so over the few next few weeks, I want to switch gears with you and do something I've never actually done before, which is um, to not preach out of the lectionary or not preach out of uh, a book of the Bible, but just um, talk a little bit about what I'm calling this divine debrief. Um, the gospel for the age of COVID-19. Because I, I think dealing with this from a topical perspective as opposed to an exegetical perspective um, is probably the most helpful way to move forward. And don't worry, I'm going to go back to preaching out of the books and, and, and preaching a little bit more, uh, letting the book tell me what to preach as opposed to me asking what the book would, would say about contemporary things, right? Because the struggle I have on preaching on contemporary things is that um, you know, when we make contemporary things our focus, um, we don't have the kind of insight it takes to really understand what's happening. And that's a lot to say, but let me give you an example. Two weeks ago, right, Simone Biles withdrew from the Olympics for a little bit, right? Um, she dropped out of the, the team competition, and it hit the airwaves before anybody knew why. She didn't tell anyone. It was just sort of, hey, this is happening, and she hadn't had a chance to tell everybody yet, but... The world found out because, you know, Twitter, Twitter was trending and the news networks were commenting and her supporters were supporting her and her detractors were detracting her. And, and most of this happened without any context or wisdom. Everyone just sort of said, oh, no, the greatest gymnast like in the world is withdrawing and it's this, that or the other. Um, we are not so smart as to derive meaning from those things which are immediate. It takes time and reflection before we can say we understand what a current event means. I was always bothered by this in school because I was in school in the 80s and the, and the early 2000s. It bothered me that my history classes never went past World War II. Um, I knew nothing, for example, about the Cold War or the Soviet Union or why everyone loved Ronald Reagan or the Vietnam War. And those were all things I knew about as a kid because they were things my parents had talked about and things I saw referenced on TV. But it took some time for me to realize this, that we didn't know all of the historical implications for what these current events um, had in store for us. And so it took time for us to understand and, and condense them and explain them to kiddos in a such a way that it made sense of the story of people and the story of America. But at the same time, <laughs> um, those are all great reasons not to do a contemporary sermon series. But at the same time, none of our contemporary concerns are alien to God. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new is going to pop up in the world where God's going to say, oh, oh, I, this is new. I better sort of pause and, and reflect and think really hard before I make any decisions about this before, because what am I going to do? I don't want to mess things up. I, I'm, I am caught off guard. God doesn't say that. God never says, I am caught off guard by the thing that's happening in my life today. So the question I want to ask ourselves through this series is this. How do we understand this pandemic in light of the Christian gospel? What does the fact that Jesus died and rose again from the dead mean when the death toll is 615,000 people? What does the fact that Jesus is coming back to fix and judge the world mean 
uh, in regards when our bodies are this frail and, and the frailness of our bodies and the frailness of our psyches have been put on display. What does the forgiveness of sins and repentance have to do with the fact that my family member uh, was sick or I can't find affordable toilet paper? Right? That's the goal of this series, to sort of teach us how to think about the gospel in matters that are contemporary. And to start off, I want to talk about the God of the plague, um, the God of the plague. That's a scary way to talk about God. I understand that, the God of the plague. Um, but the reality is, is that as people who are experiencing a plague in our own times, um, there are plenty of ways um, that the Bible um, talks about God and his relationship to pestilence, plagues, pandemics, and the like, where he actually takes responsibility and credit for starting them. Um, of any of the tools of God's arsenal that he uses in the whole of the Bible, flooding the earth, fire falling down from heaven, being conquered by a foreign nation, amongst those tools in God's toolbox is the plague, a pandemic, a pestilence. And I wanted to give you some insight as to why that is and what that is and what does God do with them in scripture. And, and to do that, there are four readings in our bulletins today or four readings that I'm going to go through. They're going to give you a chance to sort of interact with this idea. I couldn't include them all, but here's a sample. Um, so there's a reading that we have today from the book of Numbers. And uh, this is a book, the book of Numbers categorizes uh, and sort of catalogs the stories and the people who wandered in the wilderness after their slavery from Egypt before they were in the promised land. And our reading picks up today after a grievous sin has been committed. Um, Korah is a rabble rouser in the midst of Israel. and He attempts a political insurrection of sorts against God's chosen leader, Moses. So Moses is in charge. Moses has a connection with God. And Korah decides to start a rebellion against him. And God is so angry at this Korah character that he causes the earth to open up and Korah and all his family and all his supporters and all his livestock and tents and possessions, they all fall into this hole and then the hole closes up over them. It's a very wild Old Testament story just to have, you know, the earth moved under their feet, right? Well, the people of Israel, when they see that, you would think they'd say, oh, maybe we shouldn't rebel against Moses. But the response is actually something different. Um, the people of Israel grumble about it and they say, you know, that may have been a little harsh on Korah. Like, that was a lot. And, well, you know, maybe he didn't deserve to be swallowed up by a giant hole in the ground. Right? Yeah, he was wrong. But was he really that wrong? And Moses and Aaron, uh, who is the high priest at the time, his Moses is um, a sort of right-hand man. Um, what they do is they immediately drop to the ground and they drop to their knees and they begin to pray. Because they recognize this as the complete wrong response. And sure enough, this response, in response to their sort of grumbling against Korah, or grumbling as advocates of Korah, God says he sends a plague into Israel. And it's one that kills thousands of people. It's only when Aaron the high priest, doing a very good Jesus impersonation in the Old Testament, it's only when Aaron makes animal sacrifices for everybody and then the, the text says he stands between the living and the dead with incense. And that's when the plague stops. And we know that this story and other Bible stories, what we can tell from them is God is not above sending a plague or a pandemic as a way of teaching a lesson or getting the attention of an unrepentant people. And so that's something that we should take to heart and understand. 
Um, I'll, I'll say more about this in a minute. I'm not saying that's the case for our pandemic, but it certainly is the case that God does do this. Then we look at our psalm, right? Our psalm reading today is Psalm 38. It's a prayer from King David to God when he presents voluntary offerings. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you could make an extra non-mandatory offering to God as an expression of gratitude or repentance or, you know, prayers, right? A, a sort of prayer request. And in Psalm 38, David is pretty torn up about the matter, uh, a matter in his spirit. We don't know what it is, but something is very heavy on King David's heart. And so he brings the matter up to God and says, I'm going to make you an offering. And this is an offering of repentance. But what he does is he says um, he's going to compare his sin, the burden of his sin, to having the plague. Um, He says, me uh, being a sinner and having this grievous sin is like me being sick with the plague. Here's what he says in Psalm 38. He says, my wounds stink and fester. And he says, my sides are are, are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. He even says that his moral offense is so great and so well known, his friends and loved ones are avoiding him like the plague. That's a word of loneliness we can all relate to after a year of social distancing, isn't it? Do you think we're going to keep using that phrase, you know, to avoid someone or something like the plague uh, from now on? I certainly hope not because it has new meaning. Anyway, the psalm concludes. uh, When the psalm concludes, David pleads for help and he pleads for healing. He says, do not forsake me, O Lord. O God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalm 38 is a psalm where David begs for mercy. Like an ancient person uh, with the plague, he feels powerless. He begs for God's help for dealing with his sin sickness, we might say. In our epistle reading today, we have a wild and apocalyptic reading from the book of Revelation. If you know about uh, if you know about the book of Revelation, you'll know that um, God's judgment it comes in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. And the book is filled with wild, scary, poetic illustrations of that um, of that judgment. And the, the, the conclusion of those judgments come when seven angels carry seven bowls out unto the world. And each bowl is filled with a plague. It will be like the plagues of Exodus, the plagues that God sent via Moses uh, to the people of Egypt. It will be a plague that tries to get people to repent of their sins. But because they do not repent of their sins, the plagues keep coming. And that is the vision in Revelation chapter 16 that we read today. That there will be people who are powerless before God's final and unmanipulated, inescapable justice when it does finally come. There are a lot of bad and unsuitable conclusions that we could draw from the biblical stories of plagues that people have indeed done before. And um, we could do this as well from the, the plagues used in poetic language. Here are some conclusions that would be inappropriate to draw if you were to do a Bible survey of plagues. Um, One thing you cannot draw is the idea that if you are faithful and believe in God with all your heart, you will be spared from the plague. This is not true. The Bible does not link your faithfulness with any sort of relief from earthly sufferings. It does link your faith with a future without earthly sufferings, but to suffer in the present is not to be apart from God, 
because we see Jesus' suffering in his own context as a very godly suffering. Another thing you cannot say, you can't say that if you're faithful and believe, you'll be spared. And you can't say that God sends plagues to sinful nations out there as punishments for moral sins. Sometimes God does do this, especially the famous 10 plagues from Egypt. But that's not to say that every plague is a specific divine punishment for a particular action. By that same logic, um, you could uh, take, the, let's take this same logic and use it for animal bites. Because at one point, God uses a pair of she-bears to attack a youth gang that insulted the prophet Elijah. And this is a true story. You can read it in 2 Kings chapter 2. God uses two bears to maul a number of this youth gang who insulted and denigrated a prophet. We do not also say that every bear attack that has happened since then is a targeted and specific judgment of God. Maybe that could be true and we just don't know it and the Lord will reveal it to us one day. But we do not say that every bear attack is a specific and targeted judgment of God. So we do not make that same conclusion about pandemics either. A third thing we could draw from the scripture and its understanding of sickness and illness and plagues is that medicine is against God's will. That is not true. Medicine is not against God's will. This one has been in the church for a while. Uh, the, the idea that if you are sick, it's God's specific and targeted judgment against you. And so seeking medical treatment is against the sovereign will of God who wants you dead. And so for those of you from a Presbyterian background, for example, um, this argument was prominent in Geneva, Switzerland, some years after John Calvin's death. Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, successor in leading the city of Geneva, had to write about this very issue because the plague had hit Geneva and certain members of the church were telling others to go off and die and be pleased with it as a result of God's judgment. So if there is a pandemic theology that we can all take away from the scriptures that is good and whole and true, what might it be? Is there something we can take away from the, 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 the is there a thread we can find looking at all of the poetic imagery and the, the stories and the prophecies of pandemics that actually make sense to us today? Well, there, here are two pieces of pandemic biblical theology for us to consider as we wrestle with our own pandemic. The first is this, pandemics expose human powerlessness and weakness. That's true in Cotton Mather's Boston, where tempers flared to the point that bombs were being hurled into windows. And that's true of Pharaoh, who despite being a ruler of a vast ancient empire full of pyramids and castles and slaves and military might, he could not keep the firstborn sons of Egypt safe. And it's true in our own time as well. Despite modern medicine and ventilators and vaccines, we have not been able to stop the deaths of over half a million members of the United States. Have you felt powerless during the past year and a half during this pandemic? Were you feeling powerless to shield your business or your students or your family from the pandemic and its consequences? Did you feel like you were powerless over your work as mandates came down from the government and so you had to do all the same tasks uh, as before, but with a million extra little hoops that you had to jump through? Uh, did you feel powerless over your traveling and leisure as cruises and airplane tickets were canceled? Did you feel powerless over your will as alcohol and junk food consumption began to rise? 
Did you feel powerless over your neighbors because they disagreed with you about the best way to handle the pandemic and you both went different directions in terms of how you chose to respond and you both secretly wished the other would be more like you? For me, the powerless manifested itself in sort of an everyday way in the one-way grocery aisles of the grocery store. I followed them most of the time, but I didn't want to. I thought they were dumb and didn't do anything except make me spend more time in a store that I didn't really need to spend. Right, That's a very minor example of my own powerlessness during this pandemic, that I could not freely walk about the grocery store. We all have those little inconveniences, little tiny things that made us realize how powerful we really were. But the powerlessness really manifested itself when I was told by a major major hospital chain that I was barred from visiting a sick parishioner. I wasn't allowed to come pray for him, to anoint him with oil, to read last rites over him or anything of the sort. And he died before I was able to see him. I'm still angry about it, friends. Um, I am powerless to get any justice from the situation um, that my job uh, to bring spiritual comfort to somebody who was dying, I was held at bay by uh, a greater power who would not let me come to visit. And so that's the first theological insight about pandemics. Our powerlessness, our weakness, our frailty, the pandemic has exposed them all in some way, shape, or form. It's done it for me. It's done it for you. It's done it for our institutions and our jobs and our families. Uh, The pandemic has exposed that we are powerless and weak and frail uh, to combat things of ultimate importance. A second theological insight uh, that I will share with you is that the Bible does offer for us a solution uh, to pandemics, but they're not pandemics, uh, they're not solutions to a pandemic that we would naturally come to. There are a handful of moments in the scripture where a key event or decision or choice lifts the scourge of a pandemic. You get a hint at it in our reading from Numbers when Moses and Aaron fall to the ground and ask for mercy when their plagues hit. You get to it in King David in Psalm 8 when he builds um when he when he comes to God in a spirit of contrition. And with all the Bible plagues, there seems to be a pattern. The pattern is this. When people are experiencing a plague, Um, When they repent of their sins before God, the plague lifts. Uh, The plague lifts when the people are repentant. Um, Repentance, you might say, is a spiritual vaccination against a pandemic. That's loaded language, but I use it very intentionally. Um, That's the testimony of Scripture. Not that our repentance is some sort of magical shield that gives us a shield against the germs of this world, but that if everyone could engage with the pandemic with humility and forgiveness and confession, we might be actually able um, to be socially distant long enough to keep this thing uh, and make it go away. And we might actually be of proper character to navigate the hardship of this season, thinking of others as opposed to ourselves and making decisions in that manner. When the pandemic exposes our powerlessness and weakness, (laughs) when the pandemic exposes our powerlessness and weakness, Um, The temptation we face is actually to double down on power and strength. And and the result of so much of the turmoil of the past year and a half has been that, um, that we, instead of embracing weakness and powerlessness, we've tried to double down on power and strength. 
This is the emotional core of every video you watched last year when angry anti-maskers paraded through a department store uh, chanting and uh, chanting slogans and shouting and drawing attention to themselves. And it's the emotional core of every sign you see posted on the internet where restaurants or businesses say things like, no vaccine, no service. I wonder how many of you have tried to respond to the pandemic in your own light by doubling down in power and in strength. Maybe you fragrantly disregarded a COVID rule when nobody was looking. Um, maybe you went down the, the grocery aisle the wrong way because it was empty and you looked to your left and looked to your right and no one was going to see you. Maybe that's something that you did. Um, I won't tell you if I did it or not. You can make up your own mind. Maybe you took your, your flexing of power and strength to social media and you joined a shame mob. Maybe you gossiped about a neighbor or a family member or a member of the church. Maybe you took to political activism in a way that you hadn't in previous years. I was reflecting through my own prayers and reflection on the pandemic, and um, I, I was writing down ways where I was sort of strong and, and tried to become strong and powerful during the pandemic season as a way to cope. I'm not done yet, friends. I'm up to 27 things that I tried. Here is a sample of what I tried, things that were about me being powerful and strong. I tried gardening. I tried buying new kitchen gadgets. I tried drinking lots of beer. I tried home improvement projects. I tried furniture restoration. I tried making money by trading Bitcoin and other meme stocks. I tried a carb-free diet. I tried lots and lots of podcasts. That's a sample of what I tried, and none of it worked. They were all examples of how I doubled down on trying to feel powerful and have agency, and none of them helped me navigate the past year and a half for maybe more than a week at a time. The scriptures tell us that doubling down on power and strength only prolongs pandemics. And repentance, of course, is the component of the Christian gospel we've been talking about for the last four months. Uh, repentance is the mark of someone who has internalized God's love for them through Jesus' death and resurrection. And repentance is the mark of someone who understands that without some sort of divine assurance of forgiveness, Jesus' return is not good news, it's actually bad news. And that's the kind of heart and character you need to be useful in bringing this pandemic to a close. That's the kind of heart and character our church needs to get through this next season together. And that's the kind of heart that's going to keep you close to God and, and, and some of the things that come at you from whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil. That's the kind of heart, a heart of repentance, that's going to keep those things at bay and keep you connected to something that can actually help you navigate the pandemic. Um, not like Bitcoin training or furniture restoration. Repentance and humility, of course, are hallmarks of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we talk about that today in our reading from Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist hears reports from his jail cell that Jesus, his cousin, the one whom he baptized, is in the thick of ministry. And just to confirm that Jesus is all he believes him to be, John sends out a couple of his rabbi students to go confirm all these good things he's hearing. What do these rabbi students under John the Baptist see? They see beautiful things. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, and the poor are being preached to and care for, cared for for God. But blink and you'll miss it. The text tells us that Jesus healed people of many diseases and plagues. And plagues. Repentance, friends, sets us up to meet the Jesus who heals those with the plague. 
And in this way, I think we can ask ourselves two questions walking away from this uh, sermon this morning, looking at pandemics in the Bible. The first is, where have we experienced powerlessness over the last year and a half? Can we remember what specifically caused those feelings of powerlessness, and what have we learned about ourselves as a result of that? And the second thing I want to ask is this, what kind of repentance do we, not those people outside, not not somebody else, but we, I, individually, not those people, but us, what kind of repentance do we need to make before God, before our spouses, before our kids, before our parents, before our neighbors, before our fellow church members? Because that repentance by God's divine providence is the doorway into a deeper, stronger faith that can withstand the worst of the pandemic. The gospel tells us, friends, that our sins are forgiven. All our weaknesses are understood and all our powerlessness is made useful to God. And that turns us into the kind of people who can actually navigate a pandemic with a firm foundation that God is ultimately in charge of everything and so everything's going to be okay. And it turns us into the kind of people who can apologize when we get it wrong and ask forgiveness and make amends. So let's repent today of trying to be powerful when God wants us to see our powerlessness. Let's repent of our anger and our gossip and our resentment to those who we blame for this pandemic and look more at our own defects of character. Let's repent today for the tiny little ways that we have made the pandemic harder on those around us. And let's receive the healing that Jesus gives and trust that when we don't have all the answers or power or agency, the God who loves us, in fact, does. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in green, open the keys. Fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ lay death in his grave. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.